Good evening to all my fellow 101 History Podcast listeners out there tonight. It's good to be back on the air. Hope all of you have had a good start to your week. Hard to believe tomorrow will mark the start of the uh, middle of the week. The weeks go by quick, and hard to believe today is the first day of fall, and it sure does feel like it outside, all right. Well, we are back to... um, Christian D. Spigna's founding martyr, the life and death of Dr. Joseph Warren, the American Revolution's lost hero. And tonight, we are going to uh, focus on the timeline between 1770 and the start of uh, 1772. You know, anytime a new uh, decade begins, it's an exciting adventure or chapter, I should say, but it also can mark one that... uh, would be of uh, uncertainty because we never know what one year might bring after the other. But come the start of 1770, the um, colonies, most notably Massachusetts, are still facing that grim uncertainty. Okay, you know, we've already had, say, the Stamp Act repealed as and which has been great, but what has been imposed in the aftermath of the uh, Stamp Act repeal, uh, the Townshend duties, which are um, duties that were uh, placed uh, on goods coming from England to um, America, most notably lead, glass, and as we all know, the tea. So here we've had some reasons to be celebratory especially with the Stamp Act repeal, but just when we um, are convinced that we've gotten over a big hump or hurdle, let alone uh, Parliament still finds ways to test our waters and really make lives uh, for those in Massachusetts, most notably right now, all the more miserable. So, I do think, though, it is fair to say that not everything is confined to just the people in Massachusetts leading up to 1770. It is fair to say that perhaps uh, colonies like New Hampshire and uh, Connecticut feel uh, very um, feel very much the same way like those in Massachusetts do. And what do you know, at the start of uh, January 1770, fighting in New York City breaks out between sailors and waterfront workers whom go head-to-head with British soldiers who have issued anti-Sons of Liberty handbills. Now, you know, I think it's fair to say that British soldiers have gone about issuing these anti-Sons um, of Liberty handbills in large part just to test the waters and to create um, more um, tension that will fuel the fire. Luckily, nobody dies in this in this uh, confrontation of confrontational event, but the incident alone would lead to further problems in Massachusetts regarding Brit- British troop presence. So it's bad enough that you're upset over, you know, not liking a piece of legislation, uh, especially like that Stamp Act or the Townshend duties, but the presence of troops alone is something that irritates uh the colonists, or should I say the people, most notably in Boston, New York City, and now um, in other uh, places where British uh, troops will eventually make their presence known. 
But our first uh, lead-off bonus question for tonight is the following. What set of agreements expired on January 1st of 1770? The answer is the non-importation agreements, which had prohibited all British goods from entering into the port of Boston. Well, I will say this. Um, is that bad news for the Whigs who are anti-British? Uh, yes, it is bad news. Is it good news for Tories, though? It Tor Those of you out there who don't know what Tories are, the Tories are, it's another word for the Loyalists, those who uh, support the Crown. The Tories have probably suffered more than anybody because... Um, they can't rely. They're not able to rely on goods coming in uh, to uh, Boston from England, and they. It's not so much that they can't rely on goods coming in. They also have goods that uh, are going to be uh, shipped that need to be shipped out that are sitting in warehouses collecting dust. So if you think about it, if you're if if you're not able to have any kind of goods coming into you from England, what are the chances of you being able to ship out anything going to England um, that would have any kind of um, true relevancy? So, come February 22nd of 1770, this event here uh, is something that has not been um, thought much of until I uh, read the book, uh, Founding Martyr. But February 22nd, 1770 is very important um, in Massachusetts. There is a demonstration movement that takes place in Boston's North End pertaining to the non-importation measures. So given that the um, non-importation agreements uh, were set to expire on January the 1st, the uh, movement is still going forward. And so um, those who are uh, against the crown have set up uh, protesting in Boston's North End in front of a shop owned by Theophilus Lilly. Now, who is Theophilus Lilly? Well, he's just um, he's a regular shopkeeper in town. The only problem is that Theophilus Lilly is um, a loyalist. And he's not the only one who's a loyalist, but uh, and I'll mention this other person's name in a moment. But who or who goes about orchestrating the protest? It turns out that it was none other, none other than young boys between the ages of ten and up. Now remember, folks, in 1770, if a child is ten years of age or older, he or she is considered to be an adult because remember, most children don't make it past the age of ten. Of course, in today's time, a, a young child, a young boy or a girl at the age of 10 would still be considered a child. But we must um, put ourselves in 18th century um, living standards and realize that, okay, just because, one, just because your son or daughter is the age of 10, in 1770, that is considered to be adult um, age status, the start of becoming an adult. So... Yes, what do you know? Uh, these young boys between the ages of 10 and up are the ones orchestrating the protest. I think it's fair to say that even these young boys at an early age don't miss out on anything. 
In this case, I don't know if it's, this is a good thing or a bad thing. A good, it might be a good thing on, on one hand to understand how serious the problem is between uh, the presence of British soldiers and the pre- presence of, um, of British policies on everyday American, on everyday colonial American uh, people's lives. But the bad news is what's going to take place in terms of uh, personal actions. So the other fellow who plays a a part with what's about to happen, not for all the right reasons, is Ebenezer Richardson, who is a very ardent um, Tory, and he's an ardent Tory, meaning he's an ardent loyalist who will um, go above and beyond to support the crown, but he is also a customs service employee. Now, all of you should know that uh, it's one thing to be a tax collector during this time, but if you are a tax collector in Massachusetts, you are frowned upon. And people in Massachusetts despise tax collectors because 99.9% of them are working for the crown. Not just working for the crown, they are swearing their allegiance to the crown. So for many of these people in Massachusetts, most notably in Boston, they don't want their hard-earned tax dollars going to uh, a government that doesn't even value them for who they are. And that makes a fair case right there onto itself. So anyways, Ebenezer Richardson... um, is a customs service employee. He unsuccessfully tries to remove the importer sign in front of Theophilus Lily's shop. So to make matters worse, it was one thing to try to remove the importer sign, but Theoph- uh, not Theophilus, Ebenezer Richardson goes about resorting to hurling insults at these young boys whom went about throwing debris at him. Okay, this is where uh, bad examples are being set. Now, of course, you have to remember the situation. It's a very hostile one in Massachusetts. So it's one thing to have a group of um, protesters right near the vicinity of your property. Is it okay for this... Was it okay for this gentleman to hurl or shout obscenities at the young boys? Probably not. He could have said to them, look, you all need to leave, you all need to leave this property now because it's private property and there's no trespassing. On the other hand, was it appropriate for these young boys to go about uh, throwing debris at him? No. So, uh, to make matters worse, uh, Mr. Richardson heads home. Of course, you have to remember he does. We don't have cars back then, so. Um, but to make matters worse, it's one. Mr. Richardson not only is going home, but the um, crowd, or should I say, the mob crowd. And what I mean by mob in 18th century is an unruly crowd. We're not talking organized crime, but an unruly crowd of people who in British society were frowned upon as by the Crown and Parliament as uneducated people. So anyways, this, un, this uh, hostile mob crowd um, grows, or should I say intensifies, to where they, are, they follow Ebenezer Richardson into his home. 
they start throwing um, whatever, whatever objects they can find and hurl them into his um, windows, which get broken. And to make matters even more complicated or worse, Mr. Richardson is home with his family. So can you imagine being in his shoes now? He's got not only to think about his well-being, but that of his family. So, you know, you can't fault Mr. Richardson here. You know, how is he going to protect his family? Well, in those days, how you went about protecting your family from intruders was by having your rifle ready to go. The intention would not have been to have killed someone, but it would have meant to say, hey, if you keep antagonizing me, uh, the unthinkable might just happen. I might just have to shoot in, shoot you or shoot to, you know, to get you off my property as a scare tactic. Well, Ebenezer Richardson fires a shot into the crowd. He hits two people, one being a young man and a boy. Well, I think it's fair to say now that blood has been shed. The young man who was shot was age, he was of a, about 19 years of age. He was treated medically by Dr. Warren for his injuries. He would survive intact despite having limitations with his forefinger, with the forefinger on his right hand. The young boy who, um, who wasn't so lucky, he was about, the, about 10 years of age, his name was Christopher Sider. He sustained severe life-threatening wounds and would sadly die eight hours after being shot. Here's a question that um, should um, relate to many of you who either have children or who, are, who know uh, friends of yours who do have children. With young children of his own, did Dr. Warren himself express anger over the death of this 10-year-old child? Yes. It's an absolute yes. Warren himself went as far as organizing the young boy's funeral, which led countless numbers of people to attend. The funeral procession itself was a quarter mile long. Well, so, you know, it's probably fair to say that maybe Dr. Warren didn't know the whole story. Of course, as we all know, big or small, and sometimes whether we want to face reality or not, that there are two sides to all stories, big and small. But do I think it's unfortunate that a 10-year-old boy lost his life and that the 19-year-old, despite his wounds, did survive? Uh, sure, I, it, it's, it's a, it was a very tragic circumstance. On the other hand, could it have been prevented? It's hard to say. Because with all the tension and hostility going on, for every uh, British insult that was hurled at the people of Massachusetts, there was another insult uh, hurled right back at um, not only those who were loyalists, but those in a British uniform. The bottom line is there was no middle of the road to bring both sides together for any kind of uh, compromises. I mean, yes, the Stamp Act was repealed. And yes, there was a non-importation agreement, but somehow it still wasn't enough to resolve uh, the issues at stake. 
Here's the next question here. Was Ebenezer Richardson found guilty of killing 10-year-old Christopher Sider? Yes. But two years later, in 1772, believe it or not, he was pardoned by the Crown at the request of Royal Governor Thomas Hutchinson's urging. Not to get too far ahead into um, the timeline in terms of the years, but in 1772, the pardoning of Ebenezer Richardson only fueled the flames of tension. In other words, things just got even worse. I don't understand even myself why Ebenezer Richardson had to be pardoned, but remember, Governor Hutchinson is acting on the request of the Crown. And he's also doing it to probably please those those other members in the community who are of loyalist faith. Well, here's a bonus question to consider. In the aftermath of 10-year-old Christopher Sider's death, were there multiple confrontations between British troops and the people of Boston? The answer is yes. As a matter of fact, Samuel Adams, John Adams' cousin, became very convinced that the soldiers themselves would fire into an unarmed crowd, whereas British Colonel William Dalrymple became convinced that government in Massachusetts was placed in the hands of many. Well, this is a good example where both sides are predicting the inevitable. In other words, Samuel Adams on the on the uh, Whig or Patriot side is very convinced that the soldiers over time, depending on where they are in Boston, had the potential to fire into an unarmed uh, crowd of people that could result in uh, multiple deaths. And whereas Colonel William Dalrymple, he already know on the British side, he already knows that uh, the British are not able to have any kind of proper order and and that the government is in the hands of so many, which on the other hand, uh, which on one side is actually not a bad thing because if government was placed in the hands of a few, then how can the mass, meaning the, the majority of people have a proper say and how they feel about, um, British treatment towards them. Well, if you think that that's one part of the uh, question, how about the next one? What's so important about March 5th, 1770, let alone the night of March 5th, 1770? Well, the answer, this is a good one. The Boston Massacre being the infamous event in Massachusetts that ultimately broke the camel's back. Or the incident, I should say, that that was the straw that broke the camel's back. However, uh, I, I should point out that uh, for those of you who know about the Boston Massacre, the incident alone just didn't happen overnight. I think it is fair to say, though, that uh, for many, for previous generations, even my father told me this once. He said, you know, Kirk, for years when I learned about the Boston Massacre as a child, we were always told that the, that the incident itself was just an isolated situation, that it just, 
that nothing else really led up to it other than a bad confrontation between British troops and innocent bystanders, bystanders in Boston and innocent people lost their lives. Well, yes and no, that innocent people lost their lives, but what we have now come to realize, especially in uh, Dan Abrams's book, John Adams Under Fire, I remember sharing that with you all and from my first um, podcast book I did, and even in Eric uh, Hinderaker's uh, novel, uh, Boston's Massacre, which I read last year, that's another good read about the Boston Massacre itself, that basically uh, the massacre itself had been brewing. The incident that, that was the Boston Massacre had been brewing ever since the British had arrived two years earlier in 1768. But um, it is fair to say, though, this, that um, in, the days, in the days leading up to March 5th, especially given 11 days earlier that 10-year-old Christopher Sider died from gun violence, angry mob crowds had made their presence known as they taunted British soldiers. And we, in, in retaliation, British soldiers um, taunted um, innocent bystanders, um, not just innocent bystanders who were just gathering in one place, but both sides were confronting each other left and right with threats. As a matter of fact, one soldier who actually did fire into the crowd on the night of March 5th, 1770, did say at least two days before the, the shooting that there would be blood shed in a short matter of time. So it is fair to say that, um, you know, one could say, was this premeditated? Well, that's another question we could find out here shortly. So, mob crowds made their presence known, especially come the night of March 5th, where they were taunting British soldiers in front of a customs house on King Street. Now, I will admit here, based off of Dan Abrams's book, as well as Eric Hinderaker's with uh, the Boston Massacre, that not all the soldiers were present right away when the taunting took place. One soldier was guarding uh, the customs house, and a group of uh, angry mob protesters um, started hurling objects at him. What do you think those objects could have been? They could have been sticks. But if you want to go even further, how about oyster shells, rocks, chunks of ice to snow? Now, I don't know if all of those objects were thrown at this one soldier, but the bottom line is this one soldier was knocked down, and he was knocked down to the point where it did get the attention of the other men inside the customs house who came out, and once they came out, they formed what was called a semicircle. In other words, they formed the semicircle as a means of lookout from all angles to... Uh, be vigilant in the sense of, okay, we can't keep all of our energy in the middle. Two of you are going to have to go be looking from the left, two of you from the right. If those of you are in the middle, you need to look as well, too, to see what's coming from opposite directions. So, as I said a moment ago, yes, the objects that were being thrown were the oyster shells, rocks, chunks of ice to snowballs. That's a pretty uh, hardcore um, stuff 
to have your hands on to throw at, um, at an enemy. Well, how, you know, there comes a point in time now where if you're, if you're the soldier or, or a part of the uh, soldier regiment, how much abuse are you going to take by the crowd? As a matter of fact, historians know that a um, protester did come up to one of the soldiers and said, you're not going to fire on us. And that soldier said, no, we won't fire on you. Maybe it was his way of saying, hey, we won't fire on you unless you keep this up. In other words, you can chant all you want in telling us to go away. But once you start throwing objects at us, then we will take matters into our own hands because we have our own safety and uh, lives to think about. So what happens? Well, the protesters continue to fuel the fire to where the soldiers have decided that they can no longer take it anymore. As a matter of fact, uh, two of them, at least two or three of them were knocked down to the ground to where they got back up. Uh, their commander told them to fire. However, uh, I can tell you this much, based off of what I read in Dan Abrams' John Adams Under Fire, there's a famous uh, portrait that Paul Revere did. And in that portrait, the commander instructs, he, he, he goes about the traditional way of instructing his uh, men to fire. That is, he's got them lined up as if they were in an open battlefield. He's got, it's almost as if he's saying the commands, soldiers, present, present arms, take aim, fire. Well, I hate to tell you all this, that's not the way it happened. Based off of the testimony I read from that book, that was not how it happened. But um, but the soldiers did fire, and three men were killed immediately, and two others would die soon after from their wounds. And other um, bystanders, probably about 10 or 11 others, were wounded severely. Wounded, I don't know if severely, but they did recover. But the bottom line is, is that blood had been sh blood was shed. Did Dr. Warren treat those who were wounded along with performing autopsies on the dead in the aftermath of the massacre incident? Yes, he did. But what do you know, the day after being March 6th, Joseph Warren serves on a committee requesting that Royal Governor Thomas Hutchinson remove all troops from Boston to prevent further violence. British Colonel William Dalrymple goes about uh, by gradually removing the troops, especially from the 14th and the 29th uh, regiments, to barracks at Castle William, which is uh, located on the outskirts of uh, the heart of Boston. But the Boston Massacre incident not only impacted political allegiances, but it also shattered fraternal relations given Dr. Warren's direct ties to Freemasonry. And I should point out from the previous night's podcast that Dr. Warren 
was gracious enough to open a Freemasonry, um, what do you call it, center to British uh, soldiers who are Masons themselves. But once the incident uh, involving the Boston Massacre took place, all of that trust, even in Dr. Warren's eyes, was enough to... um, it was enough to make him reconsider who he could and could not trust, especially on the Tory side. Well, um, here's a, a, another question to think about. In the aftermath of the Boston Massacre, Joseph Warren, along with two friends and patients, were appointed to a committee that went about summarizing up the events that took place on March 5th of 1770. Now, Joseph Warren is not a lawyer, folks. He's a doctor, but that doesn't mean that he doesn't have, it doesn't, it can't restrict him from any kind of, uh, what do you call it, involvement in, um, in having his say over what he thinks should should be done and what could be done better to prevent uh, further um, tragedies like the one on March 5th of 1770. But after nearly a hundred depositions were taken from multiple eyewitnesses, that's a lot of depositions, folks, a hundred. The committee, which Dr. Warren is on, will produce a pamphlet known as a short narrative of the horrid massacre in Boston. The pamphlet was geared towards placing direct blame on the British for bloodshed. Even the pamphlet itself traced bad relations with the Crown and Parliament dating back to 1765, the year that uh, Parliament had passed the Stamp Act. Now, I will point this out too. The word massacre... It has a lot of meaning, and I did mention this from uh, Dan Abrams's John Adams Under Fire, and I do believe Eric Hinderaker in his book, Boston's Massacre, also referred, uh, referred to massacre the same way that I'm going to tell you all here. If any of us were alive in the 18th century, if someone died, what do you think he or she could have died from? Do you think people were more likely to, di- to die from disease or by means of gun violence? I think the answer is very simple, disease. Now, in, was it very unheard of to find out about five people dying from a, massac- from a shooting like what happened in Boston, being the Boston Massacre? Absolutely. Because like I said just a, bo- uh, a moment ago, when people died, it was by means of disease, but it was considered to be true breaking news when people died by means of gun violence. And for five people to die from in a shooting, that um, that is true breaking news. You know, and I say this in large part too, because in today's world, shootings are sadly the norm. Sometimes we hear about a lot of shootings in a short period of time, and then we don't hear about much of them for a long period of time. But if five people died in a shooting tomorrow, 
yes, yes, it would be very tragic, but it would almost be nothing because of what norms we now have in our society that we've sadly tolerated. So in 1770, when five people died by gun violence, that really um, was just uh, very, very unheard of, unfathomable, but it did happen. So um, here's another bonus question to think about. There is going to be a trial um, taking place involving the massacre Who's going to defend the soldiers, or let alone, I should say, the eight British soldiers that fired into the crowd? Believe it or not, it will be Sam Adams' cousin, John Adams. Why would John Adams want to defend the eight British soldiers? I can tell you this much, though, right away. John Adams was... John Adams got the approval... From, his, uh, from other Whig leaders, most notably men like uh, John Hancock, um, even Paul Revere, and believe it or not, his own cousin, as crazy as that sounds, even his own cousin um, was okay with him um, taking on this role, and even Joseph Warren was himself. One of the reasons why was because... One plan was to have the soldiers go back to England to be tried for the crime, but we wanted to prove to the Crown that we could still hold a trial, and, but by doing so, it would have to be delayed. It turns out, folks, that the actual trials, there were two trials with the Boston Massacre, not one. We were always led to believe for years it was just one, but there were two. One would be where the soldiers would... Um, would testify one well one trial was for all eight soldiers on trial the other one was the soldiers um defending their uh commander so um so john adams defends the soldiers well i should say this the re- the reason for why we have the trial here in um colonial america is to prove to the crown that we um, that we can still function despite all the uh, bloody unrest that's going on, that we can still prove to the crown that a tri- that a, a trial can take place, and John Adams firmly believed that everyone, regardless of the circumstances at stake, not just in this trial but in general, deserved to have the right to a fair trial. Well, folks, one of the amendments, or should I say, one of our one of the Ten Amendments, uh, or known as the Bill of Rights, it does state uh, the right to a fair and speedy trial. Who do you have to thank for that? John Adams. John Adams also represented the soldiers. He wasn't looking for fame. He wasn't chasing the almighty dollar. He also was trying to bring the community together to teach the community a lesson about what happens when people's emotions get out of control, when they get caught up in the moment, and and what happens once they get caught up in the moment, how they allow themselves to do things that are unbecoming. Is John Adams playing favorites? No. 
But his goal is to teach a lesson. And we're going to find out, though, in the end, whether or not his presence in defending the soldiers really did prove uh, to be successful. But I can also tell you this much, too. Uh, the reason why many of the other radical leaders approved of John Adams doing this was because, while, yes, they knew John Adams um, may not have agreed with everything that, say, Paul Revere and John Hancock and uh, Samuel Adams were all about. They also knew that John Adams was not a big fan of taxation without representation. They also knew that he did not like the fact that um, that other um, rights were being violated. However, they also knew what a successful lawyer he was and that if anybody could represent the soldiers, it would be him. So the, the bottom line is, is that despite some of these differences, the radical leaders know that they can't afford to burn bridges with one another because at some point down the road, John Hancock, Paul Revere, Joseph Warren, and Samuel Adams, you know, Samuel Adams is going to need his cousin at some point. They may be opposite in many ways, but they do have common ground in other areas. But I should also point out here that... Um, this was done to level out the playing field. In other words, it, it was done to uphold impartiality or what's known as voir dire. The practice or let alone the process of selecting a jury that doesn't play favorites and favoring one side over the other. So, October 1770, the Boston Massacre trial officially begins. So, I'm sure many of you all are wondering... Why did it take so long for this trial to start, given that the shootings took place back at the start of March? Seven months. And think about this too, folks. We're dealing with the first here. We've never, at this point in our, even though we are considered colonial America, we have never dealt with an incident where five people or more had lost their lives in one, almost in one night because of gun violence. Sure, we've probably heard of situations where one person lost his or her life by me, means of being shot. But for five or more people to lose their life? Yeah, this is something entirely new to the judiciary system at this time. So... Given that the Boston Massacre incident had taken place back on March 5th of 1770, why was the trial delayed until October of that year? I'm going to give you some answers. Answer number one, the goal was to curtail the current levels of tension, which had already spiraled out of control leading up to the shooting. Think about it. People need to have a way to um, get themselves under control. And the more depositions that people come forward with, that's a good way of getting what you need off your chest. But had this trial started, say, a couple of weeks after the shooting, it would have only led to further unrest in the city. So the next uh, answer would be the following. The soldiers who are, who are accused, 
they need to be secured um, in a proper location where they are going to be kept out of harm's way. And I think it's fair to say it's not only to be in a secure location, but think about this. Those eight soldiers have a right to tell their side of the story as well. I do believe from uh, Dan Abrams's book, John Adams Under Fire, at least 30 or 40 depositions were sent um, to the defense team of uh, John Adams and his um, partner who would uh, join him being um, uh, Mr. Uh, John uh, Quincy, I want to say it is. Uh, if, and if any of you all are wondering, um, Josiah Quincy, that is, it turns out that the Quincy family is related to John Adams. Um, as a matter of fact, uh, John Adams' wife, Abigail, is related to the Quincy family. That's uh, the connection. But yes, the those soldiers do have a right to tell their sides of the story as well. And think about this too, both prosecution and defense also need time to uh, come up with strategies on how they're going to uh, open their uh, arguments for both cases as well as closing arguments. So we're, we're looking, think about it, the Boston Massacre trial really, or the trials themselves, it is like the equivalent of real life uh, court TV. That's how Dan Abrams put it in his book. Third, the prosecution, as I just said a second ago, and I'm going to say it again, third, the prosecution and defense teams need more time to gather their facts based on large numbers of depositions provided from witnesses on both sides. Think about it, folks. I think it's fair to say that the American judiciary, the, the modern-day judiciary system or tri court trial system may have been born in the aftermath of the Boston Massacre trials. All right, I'm sure many of you all are wondering this. Were any of the eight British soldiers found guilty of their actions from March 5th of 1770? Yes, but believe it or not, it was only two of the eight soldiers whose names were Hugh White and Matthew Kilroy. Why only two out of eight soldiers, why were only two found guilty? I can tell you this. The reason why only two out of eight soldiers uh, were found guilty, being a Mr. Hugh White and Mr. Matthew Kilroy, it was based on the fact that there was enough evidence on the jury's part to come to a consensus that Hugh White and Matthew Kilroy had conspired to kill uh, bystanders, or should I say protesters. Matter of fact, um, Hugh White had openly said that he wanted to kill um, innocent civilians on more than one occasion. And he even boasted about it. Matthew Kilroy while he may not have boasted about it in the same way that Hugh White did, Matthew Kilroy did express intentions of wanting to hurt people as well. As for the other six, it was proven that they had acted in self-defense, but that they did not um, go about um, expressing intent to um, kill um, one or more people. So, Matthew Kilroy and Hugh White are found guilty of manslaughter. 
Now, there's uh, what we now refer to as voluntary manslaughter and involuntary manslaughter. Voluntary manslaughter is is where there is a willful intention to kill or or cause deliberate physical or injurious harm. Of course, whereas involuntary manslaughter meant that while um, a horrible act did occur, there was no physical intention there was no actual intention on the part of the individual to cause the kind of harm that took place. So for for any of the other uh, men who were not found guilty, while yes, one or some of them could have been knocked to the ground for all we know, but they um, fired. They fired upon as a means of self-defense. Now, of course, I don't believe Hugh White or Matthew Kilroy probably said, hey, there's, sat, there's John Smith right there, for example. I, I, I want to kill him. But no, they, there is enough proof that the prosecution did have to give to the jury that Hugh White and Matthew Kilroy did, in fact, um, profess on multiple occasions during their, um, during their um, what do you call it, um, the, during their time of being stationed in Boston where they had wanted to hurt people from the day they uh, set foot on the um, city's uh, blocks or city's entr- entrance for that matter. So did Matthew Kilroy and Hugh White spend any time in jail? No, but they were um, branded. In other words, a hot poker was placed on their thumbs and I believe it was on their right on on their right hand thumbs, and they received an M on their thumb for manslaughter. And remember, folks, when you when somebody got branded, say for theft, they had a T. And believe it or not, you could have been branded for committing adultery too. So they would put a letter A. So it was known that hey, if 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 you didn't know John Smith directly, but if you saw on his hand that he had a letter T for theft or M for manslaughter, you knew he had been convicted of a crime. And the other uh, punishment, or not so much punishment, but requirement for Matthew Kilroy and Hugh White was to recite uh, various Bible passages or verses in order to receive a pardon. In other words, this pardon would be known as a benefit of the clergy, This means that Matthew Kilroy and Hugh White had shown remorse for their actions. But it's one thing for these two men to have shown remorse for their actions, but they were, it was also required that they were not to repeat the same mistakes. Because if they had done so the second go around, it would have meant death by hanging. And a benefit of the clergy is only a one-time thing. So it's one thing to ask for it. And if you get a benef- what's called benefit of the clergy, you better, you, better sure, you better make sure that you make good promise on your end. It's, it's really a high authority's end, like a court uh, or someone in the court who is going to stick his neck out for you. So by doing so, you need to honor him back by, um, by proving to him that you learned your lesson and that you're not going to re- repeat the same mistakes. 
I often wonder in today's time, why can't people learn from their mistakes the first go around? I mean, yes, none of us are perfect, but it's sad to know that we have a lot of criminals out there who keep making the same mistakes over and over. But that's a whole other question for a whole other subject. But um, a good bonus question is the following. What legislation, and I was blown away at this. I had to be reminded of it. What legislation did Parliament begin to rescind certain elements of on the same day as the Boston Massacre took place? You know, here we are convinced that when one event happens, it's the only event that's taking place. How could other events, especially in England, take place that are of significant importance? Well, it turns out that Parliament on this night, or on this day rather, same day of March 5th, 1770, they are starting to rescind um, numerous elements of the Townshend Act. And, here, and, of course, we probably won't know about that news until another two or three weeks, uh, given how um, slow um, it takes to think about it, folks. We didn't have breaking news alert uh, notices in 1770. But when, uh, let's say, if you lived in uh, Charleston, South Carolina, and you found out two or three weeks later after the Boston Massacre incident took place, that was big news. It already had occurred, but just to have found out about what was happening, yeah, that was a big ordeal. Despite the complexities of the Boston Massacre trials, did Joseph Warren and Samuel Adams achieve a fair share of objectives? Yes, they did. Parliament had repealed the entire Stamp Act along with removing all tangible items that were subjected to taxes under the Townshend Act, with the exception of tea. And not to get ahead of the game or anything, but uh, we'll find out here down, down the road soon about why the matter surrounding tea is still so uh, sensitive. But other good news to report is that the British troops were also removed. I should also point out this, that John Adams made a very good point, and we all should be reminded of it today. You know, whatever outcomes are, um, are rendered in a court trial, or even with anything else in life, emotions alone uh, cannot override facts. Yes, I, I could say right now that I don't think it was right that maybe the other six soldiers got off. But I've come to realize that the jury did everything there was to have investigated uh, the matter thoroughly. There just wasn't enough evidence to prove that those six men had conspired in the same manner that Hugh White and Matthew Kilroy did. Yes, what... It was it unfortunate that five people lost their lives? Absolutely. If you ask me who's at fault, I'd have to say both sides are at fault. It was bad enough that uh, the British, yes, were, uh, Parliament was passing legislation left and right that did not involve con the people of Massachusetts's consent. 
The same could be said, though, for the other 12 colonies. But was it appropriate on the people of um, Massachusetts's part to be taunting the soldiers, taunting them with objects to the point where it, it put those people's lives in danger? No. Could there have been other ways to have resolved the problem? Sure. The problem was that we did not have a true third-party mediator before all the bloodshed that took place happened. But thank heavens John Adams did represent... It wasn't so much that, yes, thank heavens he represented the eight soldiers, but he was trying... But he did teach um, a lesson to the um, community in that, hey, you don't have to like... British presence. You don't have to like the fact that they're patrolling the streets. You don't have to like anything that Parliament passes without your consent. But should you be allowed to just throw objects at soldiers left and right when they have not done anything to you? Because when you start hurling objects at someone else, yeah, they are, they are going to eventually take matters into their own hands and fire into the crowd. So the bottom line is, is that, hey, you may not like the verdict, but at the end of the day, emotions will not override facts. And it's the same uh, concept in today's time. So in uh, 1771, uh, one year after the Boston Massacre incident uh, took place, Joseph Warren, again, will be uh, on part of a committee. This time around, it's a committee that will sponsor an annual oration honoring those who lost their lives on March 5, 1770. I will admit that uh, Dr. Joseph Warren doesn't miss out on anything, but for all the committees he's involved in, it's helping to enhance his status as a prominent Whig leader but also being someone who um, is not afraid to take a stand on what he knows is just and what is um, important to him and what he holds dear because he is a true ardent um, man of um, his words when it comes to liberty and ensuring that um, those below who struggle to be able to have a say in government are not forgotten. Now, March 5th, 1772 is very important. It's the two-year anniversary of the Boston Massacre shooting, but it's at this event that Joseph Warren delivers the massacre's anniversary address or speech. But it's not so much about the massacre itself. He also helped reignite the flames of liberty because after the Boston Massacre incident takes place, and not just after the trial, but there's a lot of uncertainty still. Yes, we can be happy that the troops have left. Yes, we can be happy that Parliament has rescinded a great deal of the Townshend duties despite the tea, but there still is a lot of uncertainty. It's like Sam Adams said that, yes, British troops could have fired into the crowd at any notice, into an unarmed crowd. But yet, the British still have the potential to find ways to impose new pieces of legislation on 
Um, the colonists, most notably Boston, without consent. So um, what Dr. Warren emphasizes in his speech, he's basically um, warning about the future. Not just the future in general as to what life is going to look like, say, um, a few years after 1772, but it's really about future conflicts that could arise between colonists against the crown and parliament. Believe it or not, he also emphasizes that staying allegiant or staying loyal to England at the present moment should be done. Because I, I do believe deep down he would like to avoid having to go to war. But he does know on the flip side that long-term relations between the colonies and England would cease it would cease. In other words, it, they would cease to have any true relevancy. He knows that it's just a matter of time before bloodshed will, further bloodshed will have to be um, taken um, into consideration. It's not probably on everyone's mind, but for people like Dr. Warren, when considering that he's seen innocent people, well, in his eyes, they are innocent people who died from the Boston Massacre to Christopher Sider's death 11 days before that uh, massacre took place. Dr. Warren has seen a, a lot in a short amount of time that is making him reconsider what the inevitable is going to look like. It should also be fair to say that the speech on March 5th of 1772 did cost Joseph Warren support among Tories. He's okay with that. I think he knows, or I think he, it's fair to say that he knew that he, that he could not please everybody, but he knew that he was going to have to take a stand. And this speech that he made was only 35 minutes long, but it was a speech that helped resurrect the Patriot cause in Massachusetts from being completely extinguished. Sure, there are other leaders that could have stepped up, but I'm glad Dr. Warren did. Sometimes it just takes a special person to be at the right place at the right time. And what do you know? He's been out on the um, front line. He's tended to the wounded. And I think all of that, all of the bloodshed he had seen, given that he was a doctor, made him realize, hey, life is so sweet. Life is so valuable how much more bloodshed can the innocent people of Boston, or let alone Massachusetts, endure before we, as a citizenry, will have to take matters up into our own hands and finally say enough is enough? We've already shown it, but we need, but he is guiding, but he's guiding the, uh, what do you call it? He's got that elemental force now to reinvent the situation. And that's what we're going to find out in the next couple of podcasts. How is Dr. Warren going about reinventing the, um, the true cause for liberty and independence? And how will his actions help persuade other colonies nearby Massachusetts to help uh, join in with the fight? Because Massachusetts can't do this all by itself. 
But other colonies will eventually see for themselves that, hey, Massachusetts is for real. But the bigger question is, is if we go along with them, are, are we safe? There's a lot of unknowns, but is the risk all worth the while? In Dr. Warren's eyes, it is. But can that same risk be set in Virginia, for example? As of right now in 1770, between 